Great. Well, uh, Jordan already did some of my intro. You know, I work with the youth. I work with Deep Waters. My name is Benjamin. The youth know me as Benji, so you can call me that. <laughs> uh, I want to give you a little glance at my church upbringing so that you know who's preaching to you tonight. My preaching style might be slightly different than your average Riverhouse sermon. I come from more of a word background than a spirit background. I was baptized Lutheran as an infant and grew up in the Presbyterian church when I was in Sunday school. My, uh, my youth group experience was in a non-denominational evangelical church with a fundamentalist youth pastor. And I was also a part of a United Methodist youth group. Uh, I went to a Presbyterian university and studied theology. I, my first experience with the charismatic Holy Spirit presence in a church was in an Anglican church in London. Uh, I've, I've felt the very real presence of God in Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches. And I've danced to French worship in French-speaking languages with churches that don't look at all like me. And um, I am just really, really grateful to feel like my church upbringing has been um, what I like to think is pretty holistic, though you could just call me a denominational mutt. I don't <laughs> That being said, I thought I had seen it all, but when I came to River House, I was pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever felt that way when they first came to River House, but like this kind of worship experience and language, like words of knowledge and words of prophecy and people praying in tongues behind you during worship, like that was new territory for me when I first started coming to this church. And it was hard for me to feel comfortable. Frankly, I was pretty judgmental. Um, at one point, I told one of my theology professors, professors from school that I was going to a charismatic church, and he just looks at me and goes, Benji, why would you do that? <laughs> I was like, I think the Holy Spirit's moving. <laughs> um, so my first Sunday at Riverhouse, Jordan was preaching, and he quoted the theologian N.T. Wright, who's one of my favorite theologians. And I remember thinking... Okay, the worship was a little sensational, but there are preachers preaching N.T. Wright. And I love that guy, so I can trust the preacher at least. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit just seemed to call me to stay and to see what I could learn from this community. And now it's hilarious because I'm one of the, what I would have called, you know, really emotional worship leaders. And now they trust me with the microphone to preach, so... Um, you never really know where God's going to lead, but uh, where, wherever you're coming from in your church background, I just want you to know that you are totally safe here. If you come from a word background or a spirit background, or if those words are even too charismatic for you to know what I'm talking about, you're totally welcome here. Um, we, I never used those words growing up, so... Um, in my church upbringing, we followed the church calendar, Anybody familiar with the church calendar? Today is Palm Sunday. It's already been said. Yeah, Hosanna to the, to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Um, the church upbringing that I had 
We went to church on Wednesday night, Ash Wednesday, to celebrate the beginning of Lent. We've been in this Lenten season, according to the church calendar. And today is when we celebrate the entering of Jesus into Jerusalem to claim his kinghood, to claim his throne. Uh, I'm curious, show of hands, who here was raised in a church that celebrated the church calendar like that? Oh, heck yeah. We're, we're among friends. And those of you who haven't, great. The body of Christ is meant to look diverse. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. So uh, for those of us who practice the church calendar, it's probably pretty safe to say that the passage all of those churches around the world are reading out of is the triumphant entry. So in the spirit of unity, we're going to read that passage today. If you'd like to stand up uh, for the... Uh, reading of the word of the Lord, please do so. Matthew chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Yeshua from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Yeah, you can have a seat. Thanks. Now, I could do a lot with this passage. My uh, theology roots sort of want to get nerdy with you and just talk about the etymology of the word Hoshiana, but I want to keep you all awake, so we're not going to go down that road. We could talk about the symbolism that's happening here and the significance of Jesus entering in on a donkey, why the palms are being laid. Um, Maybe you've heard those sermons before. What I want to preach tonight and what I feel the Lord has put on my heart to preach tonight is about why the crowd is so stoked. Yeah, because yeah, people are fired up right here. Hosanna in the highest. And in order to see that, um, we're going to have a little discussion about freedom. Yeah, come on. So... Rewind with me. The Israelites at the beginning of the Old Testament, don't worry, this won't take too long. (laughs) That's good. Uh, Way back in Exodus, the Hebrew people first became a people group enslaved in Egypt. 
Then the Lord sent a prophet named Moses, set his people free to venture across the wilderness to the promised land, where they set up their own sovereign nation without a king for a while. They got conquered. They were set free by a judge. They got conquered. They were set free by a judge. Eventually, they had a king. There were all these wars. Their history was messy. They were supposed to be a blessing to all nations. But then they ended up just kind of getting beat up because their faithfulness to God was wavering throughout the years. The most devastating time that they were beat up was in 586 BC, a.k.a. a very long time ago, when Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. Babylon came, leveled the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, stole all of the gold in the temple, including the Ark of the Covenant, and took the Israelites into exile in Babylon. This is the most devastating thing that happens in the history of the Old Testament. That's 586 BC. Now, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, it's roughly 30 AD, give or take, aka 600 years later. So the Israelites had not had a sovereign nation. They hadn't been independent as the nation of Israel, not in captivity for 600 years. The history of the United States is roughly like 250. Yeah, double that and then some. Isn't that amazing? Over the 600-year period, prophets had come. And before the exile even, prophets had promised that there was going to be a Messiah, Mashiach, an anointed one, who was going to come and sit on the throne of David and his kingdom would have no end. And they were waiting. These Israelite people were so excited for the concept of political freedom, that they were going to have a king that was going to come and overthrow Roman oppression. Whether it was Roman or Greek before that or Persian before that or Babylonian before that, they had just been beat up for hundreds of years. And now there's this promised Messiah riding in on a donkey, just like Zechariah said in his prophecy. We're finally going to be free. This expectation of political freedom. We can say that and get excited about the idea, but like, like really put yourself in those shoes. Every single day, these Israelites were dealing with Roman captivity, getting beat up, getting their money taken from them in unrighteous ways, overtaxation. It was oppressive. When we talk about political freedom, us Americans in the room, which I'm guessing is most, if not all of us, know a lot about freedom, don't we? The land of the free and the home of the brave, right? Ow! With liberty and justice for all. We know about political freedom. We had forefathers come and pour tea in the Boston Harbor and shoot muskets at Redcoats so that we could enjoy the liberties that we have today. And that's a wonderful gift. This is all the concept of political freedom. Anybody ever seen a New Hampshire license plate? Check this out. Live free or die. 
Now, if nothing else screams, I'm just a fired up revolutionary, <laughs> it's those words, right? We love our freedom in the U.S. So as far as freedom is concerned, I want to parse out three different versions of freedom. Because we know, as AJ said earlier, was political freedom what Jesus came to bring? Yeah, so the second version of freedom is one, it's harder for me to figure out exactly how to communicate it. Um, maybe I could get some help from our main man, Pitbull. Jodes, would you please drop the beat? Yeah. Feel free to dance. Come on. Yeah, my young adults, come on. I'm free to do what I want and have a good time. I see that, Marseille. Somebody. Anybody. Everybody. Yeah. All right. Come on. I'm free to do what I want whenever I want and have a good time. That will title Pitbull Freedom. So the second verse, there's a part in that song where he says, I am free to do whatever I want whenever I want, with whoever I want. I'm free, I don't care what they say. Wow. Most of the song is about Pitbull's yacht um, and about the new place that he just purchased in Vegas and all of the, you know, well, you fill in the blanks. Uh, <laughs> this is the kind of freedom that I think the secular American world hates the church because they feel like we're stifling this kind of freedom. It's like, oh man, you can't come to the strip club for my bachelor party? I'm like, no, that's like not the life I want to live. But then they think, well, but I mean, it's fun. Like, come on, we're free to do whatever we want. It's a free country. Well, free country, I think you're interpreting freedom kind of differently than maybe our forefathers meant. <laughs> I'm just guessing. I don't know. So, uh, we got political freedom, if you're taking notes. Pitbull freedom. And then our third version of freedom, you probably guessed it, Christian freedom. The freedom of Christ. If pitbull freedom is freedom to do whatever I want. It's, it's defined by the ability to follow the passions of my flesh. And there's nothing hindering me to do those things that satisfy my desires. That's pitbull freedom. Freedom too. Now, Christian freedom is freedom from all kinds of oppression within the spirit. It's not an external freedom. It's an internal freedom. So it's different from political freedom in that it's internal, and it's different from pitbull freedom in that it sets us free internally to be rid of the passions of the flesh that sometimes get a vice grip on our lives. 
So with Christian freedom, we're free from comparison. We're free from judgment, free from greed and gluttony and all the rest, right? Now, I don't think the Palm Sunday crowd realized that when they were getting stoked about Jesus entering Jerusalem, this was what they were worshiping their king for truly. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, we can't really talk about freedom without talking a little bit about the concept of slavery. So the first version, the first version of slavery is pretty obvious. It's like the overt Israel in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. The other kind of slavery is way more insidious. It's like in the back door sneaking up on you. It's like, I'm not trying to give myself to that, but sometimes this slavery to sin, I just wake up one morning and I feel like I'm wearing shackles. It's described really poignantly in Genesis chapter 4, right before Cain kills Abel. Check this out. God says to Cain, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Isn't that kind of freaky? It's like sin is some kind of beast, like just ready to get you. But, but Cain had the opportunity to rule over that beast. Maybe sin was crouching, but Cain's made in the image of God. And then we know what Cain ended up doing. He let sin get the best of him, and it cost Abel his life. If we're wondering where sin came from, you probably know, but humor me. We'll flip back one chapter to Genesis chapter 3. God gives Adam and Eve the opportunity to eat from any of the trees in this garden with only one exception. And God says, don't eat from that tree because it'll kill you. Thanks, God, for letting me know. <laughs> that would have been bad. But no, this serpent comes, and he's tempting Eve. And in that temptation, Eve is looking at the fruit, and this is what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see that desire welling up inside of her? I want to nail down what this desire is, but first maybe just talk about what is the sin that Adam and Eve committed? Disobedience, for sure. God told them not to, and they did. It's disobedience. I think another thing that it is, is distrust. There's something that Eve is thinking. It's like, well, that looks good for food. It's desirable. Never mind that God told me it'll kill me. Maybe God was wrong. The serpent said, like, it'll make me like God. So, and then Eve ends up following her own wisdom 
She decides what is good and bad according to her own eyes, and Adam does the same thing. That's why the tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because Adam and Eve decided what was good and bad according to themselves rather than according to the wisdom of God. And I don't know about you, but if I had to bet between the wisdom of God and some humans, I would bet on the creator of the universe every time. I'll tell you that now, but I don't live that way all the time, and I'm assuming I'm not the only person in the room. C.S. Lewis said that to think we could know better than God is like a stream flowing higher than its source. You imagine a river flowing higher than the lake that it flowed out of? You, you can't. It's not how gravity works. God is the source of all goodness. He is the source of all wisdom. We can't know anything higher than what he knows. And yet, we make these decisions that we know are against his wisdom. Here's just a little example of how it looks like, has looked like in my life. I think it's looked like in our world, especially over the last couple years. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, I'm at a coffee shop with my friend. We'll call him Franklin. Franklin and I are sharing our testimonies. Also, if there's any Franklins in the room, sorry. Franklin and I are sharing our testimonies. We're having a really good chat. He's a good friend of mine. And then somehow politics comes up. Well, through this conversation, it turns out that Franklin and I have slightly differing opinions on some really hot-button political topics. Uh, and I start to think these thoughts. There's like this urge inside my desirable heart, like, hey, hey, like, I wonder if Franklin is very smart. Maybe he's kind of dumb. Like, how can he even think that? I thought Franklin was a Christian. Like, doesn't he read his Bible? Judgment starts to, like, grab a hold of my heart. It, it wants it. Like sin crouching at the door, judgment is desiring my heart. And I'm starting to give to it. So then I take that judgment, and I, like, go over to my friends over here who think the same way I do politically. And I'm like, yo, do you hear that Franklin thinks this? I know, right? Like, crazy. I thought that guy loved the Lord. <laughs> and then gossip and slander grab a hold of my heart. And like, maybe I did this without thinking about it, but I certainly wasn't following the wisdom of God. I was scratching this itch to just speak judgmentally or slanderously. This is just in the example of gossip. It could be applied to any kind of sin, whether we're talking about greed, lying. You know, it starts with one little white lie. Like Larry the Cucumber, anybody? <laughs> if you know, you know. Um, or gluttony. I mean, for me, one of my vices is chocolate. I'll like, have a little bit of chocolate, and then I definitely want some more. You can't satisfy that. Well, you can. Let's see. Oh, this is good. In his letter, Peter is writing about false prophets at one point. He says they're like, like wolves in sheep's clothing, to use Jesus' words. He's trying to tell the early church, look out for these false prophets. So in Second Peter, 
This is what he says about these false prophets. He says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This language of slavery and bondage with sin makes a lot of sense, especially when we think about addictions. Whether it's an addiction to food or alcohol, gossip, money, possessions, always wanting more, some kind of sexual addiction, it's like a stronghold. Anybody who's experienced that knows what I'm talking about. Like, all of a sudden, I can't really make the choices that I want to make anymore because something's got a hold of me. Hmm. Culture does not help this very much. You know what I mean? There's all these cultural mantras that we could roll off. You do you. Follow your heart, man. For sure. (laughs) The heart wants what it wants. That sounds like a scary justification for some gnarly stuff. Be true to yourself. Or I think this one is so common. It's like the golden rule of secular America. You can do whatever you want. As long as it doesn't harm anybody else, we're good. You know? But what if you're harming yourself? Like, I'm worried about that. Or, uh... Maybe some of our young adults know. I feel like our culture just says the young adult age, whether you're in college or whatever, it's like that time of life is for drinking to get drunk and partying and having fun and getting high because that's how it's supposed to be, living young and wild and free. You know what I mean? Like it's in our culture. Like it's baked in there. Yeah, you know. We won't play that one. (laughs) And one thing I don't want you to think is that the Christian life isn't fun, because it is. Anybody who knows me knows I love to have a good time. Am I right? Good, thanks. I didn't pay them to say that. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. Jesus, in John 10.10, our youth group should know this one, Jesus said that I came that you might have life and life abundant. So I know some people who are saying, like, I'd like to follow God maybe someday or, like, apply God stuff to me every now and again, but I also want to do what I want to do. And I don't want that to step on my toes. Meanwhile, Jesus is over here like, I promise you the life that I have for you is the best life for you. This is what life abundant looks like. Follow me. It just does not make sense in our culture's eyes, right? So I want to parse out a little bit with some help from Scripture what what these two desires inside of our body are all about. Because I get desires inside of me for really holy things. I want to read my Bible. I want to worship. But I also get desires inside of me for not so holy things. So Paul, in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, this is the chapter that begins by saying, for freedom you have been set free. That's the first verse of this chapter. It goes on to say, so I say, walk by the Spirit, 
And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Paul's actually saying, whatever you want is not what you're supposed to do. Sorry, Pitbull. This language Paul uses is the spirit and the flesh. St. Augustine said that every human has a divided will. So it's complicated. I can't just do the things that feel right. John Mark Comer in his recent book, Live No Lies. Anybody? Okay, we got a couple. In that recent book, John Mark Comer says, we have our strongest desires, and those are not necessarily our deepest desires. I like that language because sometimes my desire for chocolate is really, really strong. But my deeper desire is to be a healthy human. Now, that doesn't mean I can't have chocolate every once in a while, but you get the, you get the idea. So in order to maybe ground that concept of the divided will into our average everyday life, come with me in your imagination to our local Albertsons. I, I've got a list. I'm going grocery shopping. I've got a plan. The world is my oyster. I'm ready to go. I know I'm going to head straight for the produce section, and I'm going to get salad stuff. I'm going to get fruit. But as soon as I walk through the front door, oh, they got that house-made chips and salsa. And, like, I love chips and salsa. But it's not in the budget, so Benjamin, resist. And move along. Oh, they got guac, too! I'm fine. I'm fine. Moving forward. You see the tension. Moving forward. I'm grabbing my vegetables. I'm grabbing my fruit for that smoothie that I make. I got chia seeds because people tell me those are healthy, and I have no idea why. I'm going to go get some eggs on my way to the drink section to pick out my favorite kombucha, which isn't saying much because I think kombucha is pretty disgusting, actually. But people keep telling me that kombucha is really healthy. It's something like a probiotic. And I don't know what probiotic even means, but I'm going to drink kombucha because I want my gut to be healthy, I guess. Oh, shoot. Right next to the kombucha is the Mexican Coke. That stuff has pure cane sugar in it. I'm, I'm going to want to get some Coke. No! Benjamin, you're fine. Resist. Just get the kombucha and leave. But the Coke, no. You know what I mean? This is, uh, the struggle is real. So I grab the kombucha, maybe some coconut water, and bust out of there before it's too late. And through the grocery store, I have a similar series of existential crises in every aisle that I'm at. Because the marketers that are appealing to my passions put their marketable stuff right at eye level. And then I'm walking to the checkout stand, which is the grocery store's last ditch effort to sell me everything my flesh really wants. <clears throat> and I know that, so my eyes are forward. <laughs> Benjamin, you're fine. You have everything you came for. You're fine. Well, you are kind of tired. 
There's five-hour energy right there. Maybe that'll get me through the day. No, no, I'm fine. I don't need it. Are those Reese's peanut butter cups? Chocolate and peanut butter is like a match made in heaven. That must be good, God, right? No, I'm fine. Does anybody eat Tic Tacs anymore? <laughs> Wait a second. J-Lo did what? You know, my phone is pinging. Oh, Instagram notification. I'm like, oh, no, my flesh and my spirit are just really wrestling right here. Culture really does not make it easy for us. I looked up this stat in the year 2020. I couldn't find stats for 2021. But in 2020 in the United States, money spent on advertising alone was $225.8 billion. So if it feels like it's hard to resist the Reese's peanut butter cups in the checkout line, it is, you know. There's $225.8 billion of America's consumeristic society telling you, you need more to be complete. You need what you don't have to be satisfied. You won't be content until you spend more time on your TikTok reel. I don't know. Culture really does not make it easy on us. And our willpower is not strong enough in and of itself. Jesus knows this. That's why he had to come in the flesh. So that he could crucify the flesh and that we could live by the Spirit. This is what Paul is inviting us into. It's a life lived by the Spirit. Now I want to look at how Jesus did this in his life. When Jesus was an adult, the first thing that Gospels tell us happened was he got baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. The, the heavens were ripped open, and the voice of the Lord declares down, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove and rests on him. And Jesus is like, all right, Dad, I guess it's time. So he follows the Holy Spirit away from this incredible moment where God has just spoken Jesus' very identity over him. And what does he do? He's like going to get some swords to like start killing Romans. I don't know if he would have ever run like that. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. No, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to fast and pray for 40 days. That's the very next thing. Shoot. Jesus is there fasting and praying for 40 days. And the gospel writer, Matthew, puts this really, really nice detail in there for us. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> oh, sure. Cool. I can see why you'd be hungry after 40 days of not eating. His flesh would have been starving, crying louder by far than my flesh has ever cried out for anything. And in that moment, the enemy comes and says, hey, if you're the son of God, questioning his identity, which he had just been spoken over, if you're the son of God, you could turn those rocks into loaves of bread. I bet you're hungry. And without even wavering, what does Jesus do? Man does not live on bread alone. 
I live on every word that proceeds from my father's mouth. I don't need bread. He's just putting his flesh, putting the enemy right in their place. It's like Cain, when the enemy is crawling up, sin desires to devour him, but you could rule over it. Sin was desiring Jesus, and Jesus is like, no, I'm the one in charge here. And so the enemy takes him to a couple of other temptations, right? To jump off of the temple or to rule the whole world. He's like, whoa, that compared to bread, this is a big deal. Jesus denies it every time. He says, I'm going to walk right in line with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to retort the devil with Scripture, which is another sermon we could talk about. But. And I'm going to stand firm in who I am. Jesus knows how to do this. Jesus passed the test that nobody else before him or since him has passed. And that's really, really good news for you and me because he came for us so that his purity could replace our impurity. And then from the wilderness, in the Gospel of Luke, right after he's in the wilderness, Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth, in a synagogue, and he asks to see the Isaiah scroll. And I'm interested in what Jesus is about to say. He's like beginning his ministry. He's probably figured out what his vocation is by now. And it said here in Luke chapter 9, the spirit, oh, um, I'm sorry, Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord, Luke chapter 4, that's the one I wanted. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We could just soak in those words. Here's Jesus only doing what the Father tells him to do, recognizing that his vocation is to set oppressed people free. That's why he came. He knows it. Fast forward then to Palm Sunday. He's here to set oppressed people free. And the oppressed people are praising him for it, but their oppression is confused, right? They're thinking, I'm oppressed by Rome. Which they are, for sure. But Jesus says, no, actually, I'm going to give you a liberty, a freedom, a release from captivity that's far greater than if I just overthrew the Roman Caesar and gave you an empire again. The freedom I'm coming to give you is eternal. It knows no bounds. Anybody can accept it. And you don't have to do anything for it. That's good news. So when the Israelites thought Jesus was about to take his throne, instead of sitting on his throne, Jesus ends up hanging on his throne. And that is not what freedom looks like in the eyes of the world. That is not what 
kingship looks like in the eyes of the world. And that's an invitation that we're given as Christians. Jesus said earlier in his ministry, in Luke chapter 9, now here we are, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his own sword and kill Romans? No. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? That's certainly not the world's freedom. But the beauty of death to self the beauty of picking up your own execution symbol every day is that you're crucifying your flesh by the power of Jesus. Here, Paul writes later in Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those don't have any control over you anymore. The moment Jesus' blood is over you, your flesh has no more sovereignty over your whole being. You're dead to sin. So you can live in the Spirit and be holy even as your Father in heaven is holy. By the powerful blood of Jesus, this is true. And if there's something inside of your spirit that's denying that, and you're like, I, I like, no, my bondage is too strong. Then I hope that the, the Lord meets you tonight in that place. Because Jesus came and hung on a cross 2,000 years ago so that you didn't have to be captive to anything anymore. You are free. I don't know who needs to hear that, but you are free. By the blood of Jesus, you have been liberated. That was his vocation, to bring liberty to the captives. So in his day, when Moses was about to lead the Israelites out of slavery, they celebrated this feast it was called the Passover. Moses sat down with his other Israelite friends, and they were just about to hightail it on out of Egypt. And he took bread, and he took a cup. And this Passover celebration is something that Israelites had celebrated, or, or at least were supposed to celebrate, every single year from the time of the Exodus, all the way up to Jesus' time, and even still, people celebrate it. In fact, we get to celebrate a really beautiful new version of it because of something that Jesus did on Holy Week. When he was celebrating Passover, Jesus sat down with his friends, and he took the elements, the bread and the cup, I don't need that anymore. He 
he saw this symbol of their celebration of freedom, of political freedom. He saw this symbol and he took it on the night that he was betrayed. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. He's taking these symbols and applying them to what he's about to do. And he's saying, I'm giving you a lot greater freedom than the Israelites had a thousand years ago. And in the same way, after they were done eating, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant poured out in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It's a privilege that we get to take communion together. What Jesus has done for us is right here in symbol at least. And what I would argue is that as we take these elements into ourselves, we take his very being into ourselves and realize some kind of freedom. So right now we're going to transition into a time of communion. We're going to do it like we did pre-COVID days. Is that fun? We've got rice cakes, so they're gluten-free. Every station is gluten-free for our gluten-free homies. And we also, if you would prefer, we do have those little packets for individual communion if you would rather take it that way. But in a moment, when I release you to do so, and ministry team, you can come up and grab the elements. Um, I want you to take some time to pray. I want you to evaluate where your heart is at, where your life has been. If you detect any form of captivity... If it's a little bit of gossip here, I think that might be one thing that I have to meditate on if I'm being totally frank with you. I want you to meditate and I want you to accept Jesus' freedom that he has won over your life. And then stand up and you can come and take the element, pick up the rice cake, pick up the cracker, dip it in the cup, and then take it as you will. And then afterwards, we're going to have some time for prayer, but I'll lead you through that when the time is right. But um, pray with me. Lord, we are so grateful. Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord the son of David, to sit on his throne for eternity, who flipped the kingdom of earth upside down and called it the kingdom of heaven and hung on a cross for each of us, Hosanna in the highest. We want to enthrone you in our praises, Lord. As we take communion this evening, 
May we experience a legitimate encounter with your presence. And may we know in our spirits that it's your blood that has made us clean. It's your victory that has broken every shackle. Nothing has bound us anymore in your freedom. We declare that with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.